You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys, episode number 88 for Monday the 6th of November 2017. My guest today is Daniel Wilcox, a horror and thriller author, podcaster, and one quarter of digital story studio Hawk and Cleaver. His writing journey began in 2015, when he reached the number one spot on Amazon's short horror story category. Since then, Dan has become one of the lead authors of the successful The Other Stories podcast, which is listened to by tens of thousands of people each week. He also appears regularly on the Story Studio podcast with his co-host and fellow Story Studio colleague, Luke Condor. When I caught up with Dan for the podcast, I began by asking him why he started writing so late in 2015. I'd say properly when I first started giving it my whole heart. I mean, like most other authors, I've I think that I've, I've been reading for years, ever since I was a kid. And I remember sort of dabbling here and there, especially at college when I was 18, 17, 18. I remember writing a couple of stories, but a lot of that was more dabbling rather than actually looking at it as a proper idea for a career. Um, and it was around 2015 when I was I was a freelance proofreader and copy editor um, for a couple of UK nonfiction um, companies. And just between that I found that because I was reading a lot of other people's work I just got inspired to maybe put my hand into trying to write some stuff I started submitting some short stories to some magazines just having a little play of the craft um and then heard about self-publishing and basically went ahead within six months put forward my first novella which was Sins of Smoke which I released around Halloween 2015 um managed to make it to the number one spot on the horror horror charts in on Amazon so um, really happy, and then from there, kind of met the Hawking Cleaver guys. So it's quite—I wouldn't say that it's something that I've always wanted to do, but it's something that I've always been interested in. So you were a proofreader then. You were doing that kind of uh, technical work. How, how had you got into that? Because that's quite a different thing. In, in many ways, it's not as creative. No, it was. Um, I, I just got very interested in the publishing process in general. So when um, I left university in 2012, um, some of my favorite parts of my work were strangely just going back and proofreading my my essays and um my dissertation and just making sure that a lot of well i, I wrote a few plays as well because i did an english and drama degree and in those plays in order to get a high mark you had to make sure that sort of all the full stops where they needed to be that all the you know the the, act, the characters names were in the right place and it was all formatted properly i just found that um process quite cathartic and then from that when i came out of university and i was looking at getting into a career um it was actually my my partner's mother has been freelance proofreading for 25 years and, and just introduced me to it and then i got quite lucky and managed to um get myself on an internship doing publications for um lincoln university so i did that for a year and basically got a behind the scenes of all the the proofreading process the content generation the printing the designing all that stuff um and i just i just found getting an overview of the whole process is really, really interesting. And so when you started to write for yourself, what kind of lessons did you take from that, that technical view of writing? I 
<laughs> to be honest, I think in the beginning it slowed me down somewhat because I, where now I'll start a project and I will just literally write in the understanding that the first draft is going to be shit. I don't care about um, formatting. I don't care about anything, just as long as I'm writing the words and as long as the words get on the page. That's kind of my method now. But in the beginning, because I come from that technical background of taking your time, analysing everything, making sure that everything's where it needs to be, it took quite a long time to actually get into the flow of, of writing. I'd, I'd write, I don't know, a page on Microsoft Word before I'd stop and go back and make it shine and then I'd go on to the next page, and then I'd realise that something needed to change in the first page. Um, so it's actually quite quite slow trying to adjust to just letting yourself have that moment to create the content as opposed to trying to make it all pretty. Um, but when it actually comes to the publication part of self-publishing, um, to be honest, I mean, it's helped me no end, just understanding the process of, the different edits going into the formatting side of it because I, I did a, a little bit of dabbling as um, a typesetter as well. Um, and it got to the point that when my first novel and novella was released, that um, it was just easy to format everything because I knew how a book should look. I was very conscious of I wanted my book to look how a book look or should look. Um, and quite a few of the people that I knew personally at the time who had released books didn't really pay attention to that so their work for me came across by amateur and that was something that I'd always strive to avoid. And what about the creative process of writing in terms of having a beginning middle and end and something that made good sense how did you get on with that first time around? Um, Like I say I've always read books so I think there's that embedded understanding in people that do read of what a book should read like and how it should feel and the the key points it should be hitting. I think in no ways in the beginning was I was I perfect. I think in no ways am I now. Everyone's got their own style. Um, but I think it took a little bit of a while to, to get scripts with that. My first few stories were very much just, here's an idea, put it on a page, and then that's kind of it. And now, over time, I've read a few more craft books, so I sort of pay attention more when I'm reading to, to the, the rises and the falls of each story and just make sure that I'm bringing the reader on a journey um, where... I wouldn't say I didn't absolutely in the beginning because I still feel like there's a beginning, middle and end to my early work, but I definitely feel like it's a lot stronger and that's something that you learn more the more you read as an author and the more you take that in. And interestingly, you said that you were writing in Microsoft Word. How much do you regret that now? Do you still use it? (laughs) Um, I I still use it for bits and pieces. I mean, I've, I've actually started switching to, as of this week, Story Shop Writer from the um, self-publishing guys mm-hmm. um, from from Scrivener, just because Scrivener, as everyone knows, it's a staple now, I think, of, of this trade, that you, you plan in Scrivener, you write in Scrivener. Um, I've never used Scrivener to export a file, just purely because I don't trust it, um, because I've seen people have sort of bad experiences with it, and I know that I feel like I can do a better job it takes longer, but I can do a better job formatting it from Word personally than I can just exploit the Scrivener. Um, but yeah, I've now, as of this week, moved into Story Shop Writer, which I'm, to be honest, absolutely loving. Um, and it comes quite timely because last week my, my MacBook basically died um, and I had to try and find a way to recover my hard drive, which I've managed to do. But obviously cloud storage of, of files is now is now perfect. When you were writing that first book, you say you could do the formatting of the typesetting. Presumably then that also went into paperback, didn't it? It did, yeah. I um, 
every work that I've put out that I'm able to put into paperback, I kind of do just because because I like to have my my books on the shelf. That's that's why I got writing in the beginning. It wasn't for um, it wasn't for the audience so much as it was that I wanted to have written a novel. Uh, a novella that I could put on my shelf, and I'm, I've always been a bigger fan of the printed works and the ebooks. Um, so that was always a, a conscious decision. And when I've learned that there is actually a minimum that you're allowed to put a printed book on Amazon for, that was um, a little bit annoying. So I've got a, I've got a story that's it's called Flesh That Binds. It's about three and a half words, and the ebooks up on Amazon. But that was one that I wanted on paperback, but obviously it can't because that would only be, I don't know, about 12 pages and it's just not worth their time to print. And you are a CreateSpace user or do you go for Ingram Spark or a bit of both? Uh, CreateSpace. I've not really played too much with Ingram Spark. I know I've heard um, great things. I know Joanna, who I believe was on your podcast previously, um, uses a lot of, well, uses Ingram Spark for most of their printing needs, but I've not really dabbled with it too much. I kind of, at this point, when... I'm just trying to find ways to generate content. I'm sticking with the stuff that I know to the point when I kind of go back and review and see see if I can make any anything better. Now, you, you gave us a throwaway comment uh, a little earlier on where you said you hit the number one spot on Amazon, and uh, I hadn't forgotten. Don't worry, I am going to dig into that. Uh, most people, when they write their first book, it just dies a death as a little bit of tumbleweed comes blowing by, uh, and that's it, really. So how come, then, you got to the number one spot on Amazon? Because that doesn't just happen of its own accord, does it? No, I mean, um, it was because I write primarily horror um, with a bit of post-apocalyptic. It was a deliberate choice to try and bring out something around uh, Halloween. And to be honest, with the first novella, Sins of Smoke, it was a case of if I hadn't have released it then, I would have sat on it for much longer, just kept nursing and nursing. Because I think that book in itself, I gave around 18 rounds of edits and, you know, it could have been done after four or five um, but it was a deliberate choice to bring it out around Halloween, um, which I think was quite timely. And I think, as with um, a lot of people who release their first book, when you make it public and a lot of the people that you know see that you're you're doing something quite creative, quite different, um, it, it catches people's attention. So I know that there was that big initial surge of downloads. Um, and I think it stayed on the, the number one spot for about, it was only about a day or so, but, you know, that's, that's enough that you can pop it on your book now. Um, and yeah, I think that initial surge gave it enough exposure that it, it carried up there. Um, and I'm not really sure what any of the other factors might have been, to be honest. I think it, it, it could have been luck. It could have been the content that was in the book. Um, you know, personally, I prefer it was, it was the content in the book, but it, it, it could have been a whole mix of things. But I think it was it was primarily just the excitement of the people around me that knew it was going. And then they would obviously tell their friends, oh, Dan's released the book, Dan's released the book, and that that sort of spread on a bit like wildfire and did you do your own edits on that book i thought you alluded to it just there i think i think you did um, your own edits because you presumably know all the technical things that you're looking for yeah the first one i i, I did yeah it was um it, i knew what i wanted to do with it i knew the things i need to look out for i mean i can go back now after you know it's been nearly two years since that release and i can go back and easily say that there are things i change there are 100 percent um quite a few things that I changed in that but for me getting that first book out was just I didn't really want it to be about anyone else I wanted it to be my experiment at trying to see how, what the production process was like for independent publishing um, and just how the behind, behind the scenes parts worked because like I say when I was working um, for the university in their publications department a lot of it is outsourcing 
um, being aware of certain parts of the process, but not really doing a lot yourself. Whereas this one, I kind of, I felt that if indie publishing was something that I was going to pursue, I wanted to really get into nuts and bolts and just make sure that I understood it from the start to the finish before I start making it a bigger thing. And at the time, I didn't really know that I wanted it to be a bigger thing beyond that. I thought I'd, you know, just steadily release bits of work here and there. Um, and then managed to get the attention of the original Hawk and Cleaver guys, um, which spiraled everything that kind of comes after for, for me. Now I'm going to, I'm going to talk about Hawk and Cleaver later, if that's okay. Cause obviously we're not going to miss that bit out, but, um, so I'm just going to park that for a moment or two, uh, if we may, and just come back uh-huh. to, 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 to your, um, early writing. Where were you, um, where were you learning from? Where were you going to, to graze, so to speak, at that time when you started writing? Where were you getting your information from to know, how how to do it um i I think it's going to be one of the stereotypical answers um good old bit of stephen king so let me think back in december 2014 a friend of mine um i'll say her name because you know i mention her in every book that i write now because i I give her full credit for for the journey that i'm on um a lovely woman named naomi chambers not naomi chambers let's get a name right that helps <laughs> jesus um naomi heskel uh basically bought me a book as a secret santa present which was stephen king's everything's eventual which is his book of short stories um and before that i'd like i said i'd read a lot of novels i'd never paid that much heed to short stories and to be honest i was just taken away by the 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 difference in the stories between everything that he, he writes in that book there's one which is you know third person about a type of slender man figure chasing a guy um who's been fishing with his dad for the day there's another one about a guy who is supposedly dead but all of his thoughts from the other side and just this whole world of how much you could do with a short story blew my mind open and then from that i read i, I subscribed to writers magazine in the uk i'm not sure if that's um, an international thing um but that was kind of where I went for a lot of my early inspiration because they have a short story released every monthly issue and loads of advice from, from writers, primarily traditionally published, but they sometimes have some stuff from independents in there. Uh, and I digested a lot of that. And then from that, it was just reading and reading. But like I said before, more just paying attention to the way that the book was structured and how each line flows and where the, the peaks and the troughs are on the story. Um, and then I don't think it was until about early 2016 that I cottoned on to the self-publishing guys. And from that, I, I listened to a lot of what they do to actually learn the ways of the marketing and the, and the business side of it. And so in terms of marketing, then, I mean, you, the thing is you had a great success with your first book. So uh, many people would say, well, who, who needs to market after that? <laughs> uh, where, where did you take it from there? Because you, you'd have expected from that experience just to launch the next one, wouldn't you? And it would rocket up the charts. Yeah, I um, to be honest, I didn't cotton onto that that line of fire. I, I I was happy with it. It was something that I obviously used in in the marketing of the book when I tried to. Um, I decided to take my time and not rush with with the next project, and used it a lot on the on sort of social media posts saying, you know, this is the number one horror book from Halloween twenty fifteen, and pushed that a lot. Um, but I probably didn't market it as I should. But even now that's a strong tagline that you can have the minute you in any way reach that, even if it's for, I don't know, five, 10 seconds, if you can hit that number one spot on any of the charts, that's, that's a powerful tag to have on your books and something that people shouldn't be scared to take advantage of. 
And where were you on your pricing structure? Did you did you go low? Were you pricing at a reasonable amount and taking some decent money from it? I went as low as possible just purely for an accessibility point. Um, purely because it wasn't about the money for me. It was, like I say, it was my first project. It was about making a dream a reality. But also I kind of figured that if it's not about the money, the lower the price you make it, the more accessible it can be to everyone. And actually with the Kindle Unlimited program, five free days that you get sort of every round of three months, um, I, I made sure that I kind of took advantage of those straight away and just try to get into the hands of as many readers as possible from the beginning. And then after that, I, I just literally made it free. I, I put it across, um, put it through Draft to Digital and got it onto iBooks and Kobo and then told Amazon that it was on these other platforms for free and then Amazon made it free for a while. Um, I believe it's back up now to one ninety nine on Amazon. Uh, but yeah, I just I just kept it as flat as possible just to try and get into the hands of as many readers as possible, which maybe isn't the smartest business decision from early on, but it's a good way just to get that buzz going, at least get your, your name in the hands of a few readers. And with that first book, had you realised that you needed to be doing things like growing an email list and things like that? Were you were you wise to that when you launched the first one? Afterwards, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as as is the curse. Um, yeah, I mean, if you if you go through the the book now, it will have the mailing list at the beginning and at the end that people can sign up to. Um, I actually now use Cinder Smoke as one of my reader magnets. Um, it's just for anyone that finds their way onto my other books or, or just on my site in general. Uh, but yeah, I mean, a lot of the that kind of nuts and bolts stuff really came after. I think in the early days, it was a lot just about craft, and I accidentally stumbled more onto the independent scene. Um, but then once I caught wind of the things that people were doing and started coming across um, just more and more independent authors, it it just felt so much more accessible to me, so much more worth my time. That since then, you know, this was what up to two years ago now since then it's just sort of been full steam ahead just just writing whenever i can just trying to digest as much information i can um so now i'm at the point that i've got three full novels two novellas one co-written with james thorne um and a couple of short story collections as well with plenty more on the way this year what does a what does your writing time look like because i know you're doing a day job you've got to squeeze it into to other things How, how do you find that writing time and how regularly do you get to write yeah, so I've got um, a nine-to-five. I've also got um, a three-year-old boy and obviously a home life as well. But it was probably about a good year ago that a, a friend of mine started writing in the mornings and, and cutting in that time. And basically, I was finding that I could squeeze about 20 minutes of writing into my lunch break and about 20 minutes in the evening, if I was lucky, um, depending what I was doing in the evening. And decided, you know, I'd, I'd give the morning thing a go, try and just get up a little bit earlier. So I'd get up 20 minutes earlier, getting 20 minutes of writing before work. A couple of weeks later, I'd do half an hour. A couple of weeks later, I'd do an hour. Um, so now I'm, I'm literally at the point where every day I will get up at least an hour and a half before work. And I will sit down and I'll come downstairs. And nine times out of ten, I will make sure that I'm writing. Um, at the minute, I'm planning a couple of projects. So there's not so much writing as I want there to be. Um, but I at least make sure that I'm in some way doing something productive that, that works towards my goals. Um, but I mean, it's a typical day, so I'll probably get up at about half five, um, just slowly get up, get writing by about quarter to six, six o'clock, have at least an hour solidly doing some productive stuff, get ready for work. Then I have 
anything from a half hour to an hour lunch break, depending on the time of day. Sometimes I don't even have that. But then any time I do have, I'll, I'll find somewhere quiet. I'm quite lucky that I work on a university campus surrounded by a lot of buildings with computers and quiet space to learn. So uh, I'll spend half hour, an hour writing at lunchtimes, and then I'll come home. Um, and if my partner's at home in the evenings, then I'll spend time with her. But if she's out, then I'll be doing things like podcasts. I'll be doing things like the more chill stuff that you can do when you're watching telly, just you know, a bit of behind-the-scenes marketing, some website development, things like that. So you've got to be really committed to this, haven't you? And I think uh, one of the, the big excuses for people not writing is saying, I'm too busy, I've got all the things going on that, that you have, nine-to-five, family, partner, all these things that you have to keep juggling when you're a writer. So, um, and I'm interested that you're in the, well, you're, you're almost in the five o'clock club. Um, have, you, have, you heard of, <laughs> have you heard of Robin Sharma? I haven't, no. No, he's worth checking out. He does. He's, he's writing a book called The Five O'Clock Club, and one of his big things is is that you need to be up at five, and you're nearly there. Well done. Uh, to <laughs> Because before the world wakes up, because you can actually pack uh, and compress a lot of the day into those couple of hours while everybody else is, is sleeping. So you're proof of that. Now, many people would say 5.30. In fact, you know, I'm an early riser, but 5.30, I'd bulk at that. Are you doing that every day, five days a week or seven days a week? Seven days a week. Um, yeah, so mostly I find now that, uh, yeah, I, I've done a lot of reading on, on sleeping patterns. Um, and like I, I did at one point, I was hitting the five o'clock every morning, but it got to a point where for me that was a bit too much. And half five to six o'clock now seems kind of my optimum. But I find now that if I have a lion, it upsets my sleeping for the rest of the week. And I know that one of the key things when whenever you speak to I don't know what, they, what the name of sleep experts are. But um, for me, if if I stick to this pattern, I feel a lot better in the day. I mean, I won't necessarily on the weekends get up early to write, but I tend to find if I don't put that pressure on myself, I'll get up early and then find myself going, ah, might as well while I'm up and the house is quiet. And what you're alluding to here, I think, is is the power of habit, that, that when, when it becomes a habit, um, your body almost craves uh, the, the getting up early to write because it's you're just so used to it oh absolutely yeah i i think it winds my partner up a lot because she'll sometimes just sit there and want to have that that line on a sunday off uh, sunday morning um but I, I kind of find a happy medium where i'll get up at, at my usual slot do what i need to do and i'll be back in bed by the time that she's waking up so that then we can have <laughs> that morning lying time um but yeah it's definitely a case of habit and it wasn't something that it was at all easy to build, build and anything that people tell you or anything that you read will tell you that, especially in those initial few weeks, it's very, very mentally taxing trying to make yourself do it. I mean, I remember doing tricks from putting my phone across the room to make sure that I had to get up to turn off my alarm, um, having my clothes and everything ready next to me so that the minute my alarm goes off, I don't let myself think. I drop my feet onto the floor. I get myself dressed and I come downstairs. Um, I think a lot of what holds people back is after a few days of it, your body will protest because your body's not used to it at all. Uh, but I, you know, I came from being in university and working in a lot of nightclub bars. For, so following a day pattern of getting up at around 11 o'clock midday and going to bed at four or five in the morning to getting into a working world where I'd get up at, the lakes I possibly could half seven eight o'clock and I'd go to bed at about midnight um and I'd never consider myself a morning person I'd never consider myself a late riser I'm quite open and flexible to the fact that people can be whatever they want to be by 
how they choose to live their life. So I don't, I don't hold any validation by people that do say I'm too busy. I can't do this. Or people that say I'm not a morning person, because for me, that's absolute rubbish. You can make yourself a morning person if the reward at the end is big enough for you. Do you um, follow any kind of um, mindset gurus? Because uh, all of this is quite is quite mindsety stuff, and a lot of people would just who, who were experiencing resistance would say, "No, I could never possibly do that." But actually, I, I do a similar thing. What you were saying there about the weekends is often I'll be up at six o'clock at the weekend, and by the time I go to my wife with a cup of tea, it actually can become sociable time then because I'm feeling happy because I've done loads of work at that stage. So I, I think you can find a rhythm, even though it might feel hard sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think in terms of, of people I follow, I'm very, very big on Tim Ferriss at the minute and his podcasts. Um, I'm, I I kind of go through a few just depending on recommendations from friends and just things that I find. So I read The um, Successful Author Mindset by Joanna Penn. It's very enlightening. Mm, it's good, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But I think the, the earliest one that I can remember actually reading is, um, excuse my French, Fuck It by... Oh, who is it? John C. Parkin. Uh, which have you read that book? Um, no, but I'm, now you've said it, I'm just thinking, is it on the audibles? I, I tend to, you know, when you hear things on podcasts, I just download it on audible. So it's, it's been floating around somewhere because you just rug a bell with it. Yeah. Yeah. So it basically just an overview of it. It just teaches the mindset of in a modern world, when people get, you know, annoyed or to the end of their tether and they mutter the words, fuck it. That's essentially all of their stress leaving their system. And at that point, you say that word. You've decided in your head that you want to let go of all, all that stuff that's holding you back and you feel free. Um, and obviously, that's quite a crass way of doing it. But it just teaches that the minute that you can assign that attitude to a thing that is bothering you, you can then let go of those worries. And that's a choice. That's a decision that you make. So it just kind of teaches you to practice that in different aspects of your life, whether it's you know finance, relationship. Um, health, all of those things, just to, to try and make you a bit free of the person. Um, and I remember reading that at college, and that changed the way that I think about a lot of things. Um, but I think the earliest memory of any kind of mindset stuff was literally when I was about seven years old and going up to my dad, and I can't even remember what it was now that I was upset about, but just saying to my dad, I'm upset about this thing. And he turned around to me then and went, is it something that you can do anything about? And I remember saying no. And he went, well, why don't you focus on the things that you can do something about? So a lot of what I do in my day now, if I have my spare time or if there's something that annoys me, I'll make sure that I'm in the driving seat of the things that I want to do. And I think that's a good position to be in to actually fight against the resistance that holds you back. Um, I mean, another book that obviously deals with this greatly is uh, Stephen Pressfield's War of Art. Yes, That's, that's a great one, yeah. especially, especially for writers, yeah. Um, but it's all about these... I'm a, a massive reader of this stuff, especially the last couple of years. Just, I feel that if you can accept yourself as, you know, the, the, if you can accept your responsibility on all the decisions that you make, then you're able to make your life freer because you know that it's you that is able to affect that change. I'll mention that I've just finished listening to The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, which is Mark Manson, which is the same um, kind of principle. I don't know if you've heard of that one, but I've just had that on Audible um, this week and listening to that one. So all, all, all the same um, sort of principles and all well worth checking out. And I'll check out um, Fuck It. Um, <laughs> add that to my it, it is a fantastic read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so... Uh, 
that that's really interesting though that the, the mindset the time management stuff i think there's a lot of really um good lessons in there and and, and um actually i discovered you it's, it's always like uh, self-publishing happy families this i was listening to self-publishing podcast i heard you uh on that um i then listened to your podcast as, as we podcasters do check out um, people who are doing similar things i caught the episode first of all with monica leonel um who's who's um who i now discovered her prosperous creation book which i've i've gone and bought as well um and and i think that um you know you can pick up a lot from from just immersing yourself into the environment can't you and I, are you are you do you tend to listen or do you tend to read or, or a bit of both um i kind of i prefer to read but i tend to nowadays more listen just because i have a 20 minute half hour journey to work and home every day so that's you know a perfect time to to digest some stuff when i can um i often find as well now that i've discovered the it's, it's not fast forward it's the increased speed button on podcasts so i can listen to a podcast at 1.6 times the speed it feels like i can learn quicker um but i mean personally for for craft and stuff i prefer to sit down with a paperback and actually look at how other people present the words on the page to know how i want to but learning tends to be a lot more listening these days yeah, and so one of the challenges I've found actually is that I'm I am consuming so much non-fiction these days in Audible, in books, and in podcasts mm. that I'm struggling to get the the fiction done. And actually, I need to keep reading the fiction because that's what's going to improve my writing. Do you have a, a similar you know tension with all these things vying for your attention? Yeah, it's difficult. Um, and actually, I'm coming out of one of those loops now where uh, I've been just reading and like you say listening to a lot of non-fiction the last few weeks and i've gotten to that point where i'm like i need to read something fiction to feed to feed the art um <clears throat> i think i think it's a difficult balance and especially for people like you know myself and yourself where we work outside of the writing that finding if, if i've worked a long day around all the people that i love at work and then on the way home i'm also listening to a podcast and on the way to work i've listened to a podcast and in the morning i've been writing and i'll try and sneak in sort of 10 15 minutes reading in the morning where i can there are pockets in the day where i do find myself going i need to not do anything and empty my mind and i'll have bike rides home here and there where i'll just have nothing playing just because i need that that 15 20 minutes just to have that silence um but it's kind of hard to juggle i think i tend to go for at the minute, I'm juggling two or three books at a time and just dipping into each one, depending on what my mood is at the time. Um, so, for example, at the minute, I'm reading... Um, oh, what's the... It's Restriction? Which it begins with R. I feel awful now. By C.M. Raymond and Lee Barber and Michael Andley. Um, I'm also reading The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. I'm also reading Productivity Ninja by... Forgive me, I can't remember who wrote that one. Um, and I've also got... Uh, there's another fiction one. Oh, it's Stephen King Insomnia. And <laughs> I'm trying to balance these. I know in my head I'm going, I should probably streamline and go for one at a time. But it, it depends what mood I'm in. Sometimes I'm not in the mood for, you know, fiction. Sometimes I'm not in the mood for lessons from life, from nonfiction. Um, it's just trying to, to keep it all balanced. But I think as long as you are feeding somehow both channels, um, I think at the minute what I'm set on is I will listen to nonfiction to and from work and then I will read fiction in those other pockets that I get sort of in the morning and at night. Yeah, so it sounds like a good balance. And, I, you know, you need to do both, I think. And I'm, I'm very aware of that and, and need to sort it out. 
Um, I, I want to talk to you about uh, Hawk and Cleaver because when I was listening to the interview that you did on um, self-publishing podcast, the minute I heard UK Story Studio, I thought, wow, I, I, and I, <laughs> I, I very, very interested in that because uh, you know the, the self-publishing podcast guys. Uh, it's a very, very interesting arrangement that they have. So I was fascinated to hear there's a, a UK equivalent. Um, it, it interests me because you're you're spread out all over the country. H- how did you guys first connect? So um, let's see, there are four of us. There's myself, there's Luke, there's Ben, and there's Matt. Luke and Matt knew each other from way back. Luke uh, used to run a podcast called Luke's Massive Storytelling Podcast, um, from which Ben, I believe, um, and they'll probably shout at me if I get this wrong, Ben, I believe, was a fan and reached out to Luke and got in touch and said that he was a writer, so they got into a writing challenge with each other. And then... Uh, it just so happened. This is this is the most tenuous connection. So after I released Sins of Smoke, my partner's a music teacher who one of her students who was, I think at the time, an 11-year-old girl, her mum knew Matt's mum and knew that Matt wrote. So told me to get in touch with Matt and read one of his books because he's an indie publisher. And then Matt saw my Sins of Smoke and basically just contacted the other guys and said, look, he's, you know, we it's it's worth bringing him in and just seeing if, if we can all work together. So it was kind of, um, I, I don't know, I guess it, it's one of those situations where the stars aligned and it all just kind of fitted into place. But it all came from the idea that we're all creatives. We all like to write stories and it's much stronger us doing that all together than it is individually. So let's just establish then what a story studio is. What's the purpose of it and how does it give you a, a, a writing advantage? So, so I think stories cover a, a massive scope. It's, it's different to say you're a novelist than it is to say you're a writer um, in that we, we love writing stories. And for a lot of us, our main beginnings came from short stories, novels and novellas. But we, we don't really like to limit our art. So there are a lot of different avenues we want to explore. And um, like, for example, Luke and Ben have successfully funded their first comic, El Marvo, on Kickstarter. Obviously, we have <clears throat> The Other Stories, which is a fiction podcast. Um, I know that we're looking into some film stuff as well to come with The Other Stories. And Luke and Ben are very much into their film um, writing and trying to get some stuff on the screen. Um, <laughs> the... I guess the purpose behind the whole story studio is that we want to be known for the ideas that we write, but we don't want to limit ourselves with the medium through which they're told, which it could come under anything like video game writing. At the minute, um, I've recently spoken to a guy that runs like a horror experience, physical world thing um, in the UK and basically just reached out to see if there was any way of writing some fiction storylines where they can lead people through narratives kind of like an Orton Towers experience for people that know Orton Towers in the UK um but maybe something like that but I think we're just interested in the wider telling stories than you know being a novelist I'm intrigued as to how you actually manage this do you meet up in person do you uh connect via Skype when it's working have you ever (laughs) met in in person yes we've met twice in the I think it's in the two years that we've all kind of been a four um the first was a comic-con that we all went to um which was in lincoln just to we, we had a stall there just to play about the the 
Comic-Con scene. We're actually going to another one um, October the 14th in November, for anyone that wants to come see us. November, 14th of October in Nottingham, for anyone that wants to see us. Um, and then the second time, it was just a hangout at a friend's just to, well, it was at Matt's house, just to go and all meet together and just have a bit of food and some shenanigans. So that was quite fun. But most of it is through Skype. A lot of it is through Slack, um, which I guess for people that don't know, it's just basically like a messenger group where you can follow your conversations under different different um, categories. But we kind of, I don't know, I guess it's a bit of a strange thing. So we, we all communicate about the projects we're up to. We all cheer each other on and we support each other where we can. But we don't restrict anyone's creativity. If someone wants to do one thing, we help where we, we can. So Ben will do some design work for something for Matt. Matt will do some design stuff for maybe Ben or Luke. I'll format the books for, for the guys. Luke will do audio editing for different podcasts and things. Um, but most of it is absolutely digital. Like I say, it's, it, we've met each other twice. It'll be three times in a couple of weeks. Um, but every time we've seen each other, we just, we just tend to gel and get on quite well which I guess is quite fortunate. But this is a, a business proposition and, and money's involved and, and rights are involved. So do you have any kind of formal arrangements uh, around that? Yes, we've got myself, Luke and Ben um, as registered business owners. And then we have, we've, we've got sort of soft guidelines in place. I know we, we probably need to put some, some hard ones in, but at the minute we, we just have a 25% split in each way of sort of the overall growth and then a couple of boundaries in place for our own projects. Cause if I know, say for example, Ben raised the book, obviously he deserves more percentage of that than, than the rest of the guys. But then a percentage of that kind of jumps back into Hawk and Cleaver as a, as a growth pot for everyone. So a lot of the books we're starting to push through just one dashboard on create space and KDP just to make it easier to see the revenue and to see the sales and to see the things that we can advertise. Um, but at the minute, it's all it's all quite loose until we, I think, have a bit more work behind us. I mean, we have a fair bit of work behind us. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's mostly about just streamlining under one dashboard at the minute. One of the things that would uh, concern me about working with even one other person, let alone three of them, is that, you know, it, it would be a committee effort. We'd spend so much time talking about stuff and deciding what we were going to do that nothing would get done. You'd lose that dynamic of being a <laughs> single, you know, fast writing author. So how do you manage that stuff uh, practically? How do you get something done at the end of all the discussion? I think we've naturally just tended to adopt certain roles on certain things. So we'll all have our own individual projects that we take a lead on. Um, in the case of the other stories podcast, that's gone through quite a few significant changes because that's got a fair bit of production behind it. So, I mean, for example, in the beginning, um, Luke did all of the audio editing, did everything, putting the narrators together and, and the rest of us just wrote the stories. And then as time's gone on, we've brought in an editor, we've brought in, you know, more narrators i've taken a bit more of a front seat on <clears throat> the production side in making sure the story's coming on time making sure they're, they're proofed so there aren't any mistakes giving that to narrators we've just kind of over time adopted the roles that we feel fit best um like ben oversees a lot of the social media because he just seems to enjoy that a lot more and we i mean we we each accept that we've got the sh individual strengths and we each accept that there are things that 
the other guys do are better than ours. So when it comes to, say, a new project, one person will straight away take the lead, depending on, you know, if it's one of their ideas that has been birthed. And then we kind of just slot in as and when we may. There's not really been any um, animosity or any worries about control in certain points. It just, it's just literally four guys just trying to do the best with what we got. And I think because we all understand that as an ethos and that we're all working towards the same goal, I think that's just a huge thing to, to have behind you. There isn't, I wouldn't say there's any ego involved because we're, we're all here for each other. To what extent are you modelling your system on what the self-publishing podcast guys are doing? Because this is quite a remarkable little business, isn't it now? Yeah, I wouldn't say we're that there's anything particular that we've modelled on them. I think it's just one of the things that naturally will come with the being a digital story studio and the stuff that we're doing. It's just there are a lot of similarities, which was a running joke when we went on the podcast a few weeks back. Um, that there was a lot of stuff that we were kind of doing that was similar, but it, it was never intentional. It's just if you've got people collaborating and working towards the dream of being an indie and making money from the stuff that you love, there's going to be a lot of crossover. I know that um, Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon from Moulton Universe Media uh, are doing a lot of stuff very, very similar to what we're doing. And, you know, we've spoken to them just about their process and, and the things that they do. Um, and there's some crossover there, but none of that's deliberate. And I think that because there tends to be an atmosphere in the indie scene of a rising tide uh, raises all ships, that no one seems to kind of resent you for if anything is quite similar because we know that the world is big enough for, for everyone, especially at this point. Um, but in terms of tools or things that we've, I, well, I personally picked up from SPP, uh, Slack was obviously a big one, but Slack isn't just an awesome tool for collaborating. Um, I personally use Asana for a lot of my projects, but I know that the other Horton Cleaver guys don't. Um, yeah, so there's not anything big that I'd say that we've taken from them other than friendships and, this is going to sound so cheesy, um, but friendships and just being on the same page as everyone else is a good way to move forward and to try and get your face seen. You've got um, some podcasts as well. One of them is doing incredibly, the other stories, and you've got the Story Studio, which is uh, very much this kind of format where you're interviewing um, other indie authors. Let's talk about the other stories first because you've had some phenomenal success with that podcast. Just talk, just talk us through what it is and, and its history, if you would. Yeah, so the Other Stories podcast is a 20-minute, 15-20-minute fiction podcast that releases an episode every Monday. Every four weeks, we change the theme. Um, primarily because there are four Hawk and Cleaver writers, so we each write a story based around that theme, and then we'll move on to the next one. Um, and the idea the idea for that basically came from when, so it was January 2016, we were looking for a way to build an audience um, and to just try and create a body of work that we could push. And I came up with the idea of if we each wrote a 1,000-word short story, we could put that together each month and we can release a small magazine of some type and just put that out there to see if people would take it and just to, to raise our name. And then Luke came on um, with the idea that because he's run podcasts in the, uh, in the past, why don't we turn it into a, a fiction podcast to which I was quite dubious about to start with because I know that there's quite a lot of work involved in podcasts itself. And also I'm not too familiar with the actual production side of that. Uh, but we went ahead with it. We, we planned, I think we got four 
the first seam set up, all narrated and put it out there. And we, we started getting quite a nice little trickle of downloads in the first month and managed to make our way onto the new and noteworthy of, of iTunes, which I think was a big stepping stone up. And after three months, we were celebrating 10,000 downloads. After about seven or eight months, we were on quarter of a million. Um, and we're literally now, in the, these coming weeks, are about to hit one million downloads in, I think, it's 18 months, which is obviously phenomenal and something that we didn't really see from the start, but we, we, we couldn't really be more thankful for. It's incredible. And I know when you were doing the interview with the SPP guys, uh, this is something, they tried something similar themselves and it, and it didn't work out for them. Now, this just makes me tired just thinking about it because I know how much production time there is in a podcast. You're even, you're writing the blasted stories as well, um, you know, to, to, to then narrate, which there's also a lot of time involved in. I mean, that, that's some undertaking, but it's really taken off well for you. Now, what I want to know though is how is that, is that fueling the business? So I think it's, I mean, the original intention, like I say, was to keep that creativity ticking over and to give us something to all collectively work towards. And in terms of keeping Hogan Cleave United, I mean, this is our, this is our flagship thing. This is the, one of the things at the minute that we're, we're getting most attention for. Um, it's, it's primarily just, it's building a readership. So we have, thousands of people subscribed that get the episode every monday um it's obviously fantastic to put out there when we're talking to other indies because it's something that a lot of people aren't aren't doing or seeing that side of the audio world a lot of people are still sticking to their, to their books unless it's an audio book but um it's it's mostly just about bringing up those those listeners and we have a, a facebook group online for facebook.com um forward slash i think it's forward slash groups forward slash hawk and cleaver and we have you know several hundred people on there that, that engage we get them to pick the themes each week it's a good way for us to if we have any projects upcoming so me and luke will sometimes on the books that we write together we'll post on there and say uh think of a character name that you want to put into the book and then try and feed that a little bit across to to the written style of fiction uh, in terms of crossovers between podcast and written fiction there's not a whole lot because people that listen to free podcasts aren't the type that will probably pay to read books but there are people in that that have emerged from the woodwork and we've got some diehard fans that are constantly in touch with us and have now got to the point where they buy everything that that we put out in in book form which is obviously a fantastic thing for us and is beneficial for the business yeah, and that goes back to this concept of having a thousand true fans to make your your business work. Your building through podcasts, yeah. and I, I got to say, I mean, I've, you know, I've been doing digital stuff for a long time, uh, fairly new to the podcasting world, but I've never known anything like podcasting for building close relationships with with, with listeners and people engaging with you. I think it's way better than than you know blogging uh, ever was. And I think you're having the same experience. Yeah, it adds that personal touch. I think when there's a difference between reading someone's words and hearing them speak and especially when they speak to you directly. So we, we use the other stories podcast a lot to push towards our Patreon page, which we have um, a patreon.com forward slash Hawk and Cleaver. And most of our um, patrons and there are people that have come to us from the other stories podcast. And we make a point of at the end of some podcasts, reading out their names every time we get a new subscriber, just because it's, you know, if you're if you're a fan and you're sat in your bedroom listening to these things, the, the the thing you want to do the most is reach out and actually somehow interact with people on the other side of that. And I think 
it's it's easy enough to get an email back from someone but to personally say out loud and hear someone's voice say thank you to joe blogs for for being a fan or for putting in a suggestion i think that's like the next level of engagement and that's something that we have tried to nurture over the past year and a half is to just make it because we're here for for the readers we want we want the readers to love what we do and we love the readers that we have so any chance we can get to try and engage with the people on any level is is huge and we don't just want people to listen to the podcast and disappear we want them to get to know us we want them to know what hawk and cleaver does and we want them to like you say be be a true fan not just for the money but just because it can be lonely being a writer so to actually know that people are out there listening to you is is kind of a nice thing well congratulations on the success of the other stories that really is a, a stunning achievement so well done to you and the Thank guys you. on that it's really impressive um speaking of somebody who runs a podcast and knows how hard it is and you know how how long all this stuff takes it's really good um let's talk about the story studio um because this is the um again i'm going to recommend this which become one of my recommended podcasts if you want to listen and get into the gritty the nitty gritty of indie publishing when did that start and, and what do you do on that podcast so the idea for the story studio was um myself and luke really wanted to primarily network with other authors other people that are doing stuff similar to what we're doing and break down their processes and try and work out if there are any lessons that can be taken from how other people are, are doing the things that we want to do so i guess in essence it's a little bit of a for want of a better word a selfish way to set it up but on the other side of it any lessons that we can learn from from other writers other story makers that we can uh, disseminate to our audience i think it's just a fantastic way to go so it basically came from wanting to speak directly with other authors wanting to give them a platform to have their voice heard and their process heard and also trying to connect with more um more writers and readers as well just so we can kind of build up those relationships Something I must ask you about is your collaboration with Jay Thorne, because Jay Thorne is a, a really big name in the horror world and the indie world, actually, as well. How, how did that collaboration come about? I wish there was a really nice story to it, um, but it, it was literally a case of asking. <laughs> so he, James, or he goes by Jay, so we'll go with Jay. Jay goes, um, went on our podcast a couple of months back had a fantastic interview, a fantastic chat with him just about his process, the things that he was working on. Um, and you can find that as well on, on the Story Studio feed. And then just afterwards, I just, you know, I just threw out a question because I'm, I feel like a lot of the stuff that myself and Jay do are, is the same sort of horror. Um, I was a fan of the American Demon Hunter series anyway, and I've heard a lot about that. So I just kind of threw out that question because at the end of the day, if you, if you don't ask, you never know. Um, and I think that's a big a big thing just to throw out there for any of the authors. I mean, I've, I've never once yet approached another person and asked a question and been met with someone that just doesn't want to give back, which is, which is kind of like a humbling thing to have in, in the indie space. But yeah, I asked him, um, basically said that, you know, I've, I love your American Demon Hunter series. Um, I know that you collaborate with other authors. If there's ever an opportunity where you, want another writer i'm i'm so down to be involved and obviously as a uk writer i can write something uk for his series um and he he just straight up was like yeah let's go for it let's give it a go put, put together a proposal and from there it, it kind of happened so that book has been out for when did it come out i think it was was it the first of august it came out and um, which is the american demon hunters london 
Um, and it goes along with all the other authors that are sort of involved, yeah, Chad Blutsky, yeah, um, John L. Monk, Zach Bohannon, the whole the whole lot. It's just, it's just a fantastic series to be involved in. And to be honest, I love the process from start to finish. Dave's a very, he's a very open collaborator. He's very much lets you take the lead. He obviously has his characters in that world, his way that he wants things to be. Um, but it was a very... It was a very fluid process. There was a big part of me that, you know, when you're working with someone you've not worked with before, you worry that someone might be a bit too overpowering on the stuff they wanted. But no, it was just a dream to to work with him. And what sort of advantages does it have uh, writing alongside a a big name author like Jay Thorne? It's the, you know, I I hate to say it because, you know, I'm I'm unknown personally as a great person, but it's that, it's just the readership is, it's, he has a reputation of collaborating with a lot of people, a lot of big names, a lot of people that are, you know, making it as, as full-time writers. And to be a part of that roster is obviously beneficial when it comes to um, looking at future projects and just having your name out there amongst people like obviously yourself and the SPP guys. I know they have a big respect for Jay. Um, and I can't really say too much on it at the minute, but there is a project upcoming which has had some attention because of that, which now means that I'm able to collaborate with some more people in the future, um, which is a big stepping stone for, for the stuff I'm doing, which I'm quite excited about. But again, I can't really say too much on that right now. That's right. And and just to, to um, tie down the detail of how you work with the other guys, a book like that, where you've worked with Jay Thorne. So you're royalty splitting with Jay. Then how does that work with Hawk and Cleaver? Do they take a cut for the business? And then I'm not quite sure how all that works. It feels like a a financial nightmare to me. Yeah, no, we, we, to be honest, we kept that just, just separate because it's, it's, its own thing really so within we we do a lot of stuff towards the hawk and cleaver side of things but if it's we we have certain boundaries so for example if say ben went off with another film producer and it was a case that they did want to do their own thing for a little while that's absolutely fine most of the core stuff that we do stays with hawk and cleaver but then i mean the money that i make from books most of that pops straight back into the Hawk and Cleaver fund anyway. So there's not really tight restrictions on if I was to collaborate on a book with you, depending on what the project is, it might not necessarily go to Hawk and Cleaver, but the Hawk and Cleaver is kind of like the core foundation of family that we all stick to and we all go to. Yeah. It's, um, it's a fascinating way of working. You have achieved, bearing in mind your first book was 2015, you really have rocketed through this because <laughs> most people are on about their third book by now. And here you are with this whole wonderful, uh, flourishing business, this amazing podcast. So uh, again, uh, congratulations on that. Where, where's the little dot in the distance, the where you're heading for, um, both individually and as a team? Where, where is that taking you? What do you want to achieve in your writing career? So personally, for me, the next level is full-time writing, um, which I think is extreme for a lot of people. But, I mean, in terms of way, way down the road, I just want to make a living from from my fiction. I want to maybe not necessarily be a household name, but just know that I can write books at my own pace, that I love writing and that people will buy it. Um, and that if I had that as a minimum, that would be enough for me. I think bigger picture... Um, I'm also working on a couple of sideways serial podcasts to the other stories at the minute. So where the other stories is every Monday, a different story. I'm working on a seven episode 
story that could potentially be a bigger thing that we'll, we'll kind of see on that down the road. But um, as Hawk and Cleaver, it's all just about, I think for me, I'd like to see Hawk and Cleaver as a bigger publishing studio. So still dealing with stories and not necessarily strictly fiction, but publishing where we can bring other authors in as well, um, market their work and just try and get a whole system down where we can just make everything bigger. Because I know that when I started out and I was doing my proofreading and editing, there wasn't a whole lot in terms of helping people get into the industry. It's a, it's a very difficult industry to get into proofreading and copy editing unless you know someone. And I was fortunate enough to find someone. Um, and I think it's similar for this. That there are a lot of authors out there that love the idea of indie publishing, are great at the writing or are great at the marketing, but just fail in other areas. I'd love to see Hawk and Cleaver be a place that brings those people together. And we just have comics, we have films, we have um, novels, we have just absolutely everything you can think of, video, video games, just to put stories out there for people that love them. Thank you for listening to this week's self-publishing journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.